Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Le Damascafier's fourth annual The Next Big Bite in our new location here at the New York Law School. I'm thrilled to see so many familiar faces. Thank you for joining us this evening and supporting Le Dame de Scaffier. This year, we're streaming live to international chapters around the country who are having watch parties. Welcome to the thousands who are viewing in Des Moines, Kentucky, Nashville, Phoenix, South Florida, Cleveland, and to our LDEI president, Haley Matson Mathis in Hawaii. And a quick welcome to our newest chapter in Paris. <laughs> Those watching will be interacting with us tonight through Twitter during the Q&A. A big thank you to you, our amazingly generous sponsors, for making tonight happen. To Kerrygold, our title sponsors, those are their two new cheeses that you're nibbling. To Wolf Gourmet Appliances, Handsome Brook Farm, and Nyman Ranch, whose trendy new little pack you picked up outside, please enjoy it or take it home with you. And the wine you are drinking is Bonterra Organic Chardonnay. Thanks to Anilon Cookware, Kitchen Chat, Melita, and Wusthof, to all our libation sponsors, the Elysian Collection, the Edrington brands, including Partita Tequila, Famous Grouse, Whiskey, and Brugal Rum. And a special thanks to you, Abigail Kirsch Catering, for what's to come. One housekeeping note regarding our Q&A. You each have been given an index card. If you have a question, you might wait till it's almost all done, but if you have a question for one of the presenters, write it down and raise your hand, and there's two, we have two um, members who are going to, four members now, we grew, um, who are going to pick up the cards from you. So just raise your hand, and we're gonna give them to our Master of Ceremonies, and he will use them during the Q&A. What will we cook, eat, drink, and crave next? We're about to serve up those answers. But first, Joan Brower, our New York chapter president, would like to say a few words. Good evening, good evening, everybody. Great to see all of you here, and thanks for coming. Uh, I am Dame Joan Brower, president of the New York chapter of Les Dames d'Escoffier. Uh, we are the organization hosting tonight's event, as you know. On behalf of Les Dames, I would like to welcome all of you to the next Big Bite, what we will cook, eat, drink, and crave in 2019. For the fourth consecutive year, we are, we are addressing this forward-looking subject with a distinguished group of authorities who were invited to share their thoughts on the important topics and emerging trends anticipated for the coming year. Among our guests tonight are members of Les Dames d'Escoffier New York, as well as Dames from multiple sister chapters all over the country, including as far away as Hawaii, where our Les Dames d'Escoffier international president resides. We're live streaming tonight, as Bonnie has told you. 
Also with us are sponsors, partners, industry colleagues, journalists, and distinguished speakers, and we thank all of you for joining us. I'd like to, um, for a minute, recognize the next Big Bite Chair, Dom Bonnie Tandy LeBlanc, and her diligent committee, as well as the large team of volunteers who have worked so hard tonight. Uh, thank you to all. <laughs> And for those of our guests who are unfamiliar with the genesis of Les Dames, kindly allow me to share uh, some thoughts for just a couple of moments. 42 years ago, when men ruled the temples of gastronomy and Epicurean and wine societies were all male, when men were exalted as chefs and women were considered only cooks, a small group of intrepid women led by prominent food journalist Carol Brock established the first professional organization for women working in the culinary field. Our grand dame and founder Carol Brock is here with us tonight and I'd like her to stand if you can Carol to be recognized. And so, in 1976, Les Dames d'Escoffier was launched in New York as a by-invitation-only nonprofit society for accomplished women working at the top of their professions. Its purpose then, as it is today, was to shatter the glass ceiling by providing scholarship and mentoring support to young women likely to become the industry's future leaders. Today, Les Dames d'Escoffier continues to expand, currently with 42 chapters and 2,300 members located throughout the US, Canada, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and now France. The founding New York chapter remains the largest with 162 members and will in 2020 host the full organization's annual conference with hundreds of doms arriving in town. And now, let me introduce Joe Yonan, our esteemed master of ceremonies. Joe will guide us through the evening's multi-course feast of trends with the same insights, smarts, and humor used to craft his delicious Washington Post food section. I'd also like to say, that Joe has a book, a new book in the works about beans. And when I asked him tonight the theme of the book, he answered, beans are sexy. So remember that tonight. And let's welcome Joe with a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm Honorable Dom Joe Yonan. <clears throat> I'm actually still awaiting my invitation to join La Dame. Um, thank you for that. Um, I'm so excited to be here, and I can't believe this panel slash jury um, that we have here. I'm your, I'm, think of me as your MC slash prosecutor. Um, so I will be interrogating when it's necessary. Um, I will be uh, defending when necessary. I'm sort of 
sort of playing both sides of the fence. I know we haven't seen any of that lately. Um, so, um, no, I'm excited to get started, and I'm just going to throw it right to our first um, duet, which consists of, I think it's fair to say, a legend, um, and a legend in the making, um, an apprentice who is only a, an apprentice maybe in his book title and in his mentality, um, but to the rest of us, he's, he's, I think, safe to say, possibly the greatest cooking teacher on the planet, um, Jacques Pepin. And we have the lovely Gesina Bullock Prado, um, who is an accomplished teacher in her own right. And we will see what joys they have in store for us. It's all about beans. It's all about it's beans. All beans. <laughs> That's the subtext. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're as excited as I am, because I get to sit next to him. And I'm happy to say that I am allowed to call him Hawkwes because oh, yes. <laughs> that's what his mother-in-law called him. So Hawkwes. I'm not going to call him Hawkwes. That's what we are drinking. The, yes, water. We just got the water. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh God. Okay. No wine for Jacques. Yes, I mean, I, I am mute. We're going to fix okay. that, Jacques. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. okay. See, he's already fixing everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I have, I have had a lingering question since I was quite young, um, and now I, every year I wonder to myself what you would do. So one of the most amazing things I think you ever did in your career, and you might disagree, was when I read Apprentice and I knew that you had decided not to go to the White House that you had decided instead to work at Howard Johnson's and, and work on their menu. I thought that was one of the most amazing, well, fix everything. Uh, I thought it was one of the most amazing things that you could have done for American cuisine. And I wonder every year, is there a restaurant that you would choose today to do that to? Applebee's, Ruby Tuesdays, like, is there a place that you oh. say, oh, it might question. have some there might be something there, but I think I would be interested in going there and kind of showing them the works. I uh, eat at home most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and when I don't eat at home, I'm invited to... Oh, thank so you very much. Thank you. Oh, my God, the now wine, the champagne. That's good. Now okay. we're good. Now we're talking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, I eat at home, and uh, we cook together with Fran. I'm invited at some great restaurant. I mean, the uh, kind of fast food. Well, Howard Johnson was not a fast food no, it restaurant. Wasn't, no. It was a family restaurant. I have to say that uh, when I was invited by the Kennedy to go to the White House, I had been the chef of the president in France from 56 to 58. I came here at the end of 1959, and I had never been well, television barely existed, but on a radio, magazine, too, that did not exist. The cook was at the bottom of the social scale in the kitchen period. When I worked with the, with the gold, I served like Ivanhoe, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state at the time. They would never, never have asked you in the dining room for kudo. That did not exist, period. <laughs> the cook was there. If anyone came to the kitchen well, to complain about something, you know. <laughs> So, uh, 
I really had no inkling, no idea of the potential of publicity or whatever that it attached to that, you know. So that was part of my decision. Because the, the person who went there was René Verdon, who was a friend of mine, who was the sous chef at the Essex House in New York. And uh, he went to the White House, and at the time when uh, uh, Mrs. Kennedy took picture with her chef, the president too, and it was early 60s, woman liberation, organic gardening, thing was kind of erupting, and then the chef started going higher on the social scale. Before that, any woman would have wanted her child to be a lawyer, a doctor, or certainly not a cook. Then now we are genius. I don't know what happened. But, uh, <laughs> You're genius. In, in, any case, in any case, so that was part of, uh, of the decision. In fact, you know, if anyone asked who was the chef before on the the White House, I happen to know it was a black lady from the South, but no one would have known her no more than me too. That was the way it was at the time, you know. So that was, I'd have to say it was not as noble for me to refuse that. I had no idea. <laughs> yes. But I, I, I wouldn't know of any restaurant now, I mean, Shen restaurant to go to. I don't really go to, to those much. Do you, you don't go to any, like, Say, do you have a favorite burger joint? So, is, are you a Shake Shack guy? <laughs> Shake Shack is good, yes. See, no, I have to say, that's good. <laughs> so, no, that's good. So then I'll amend the question. If you were to go into Shake Shack and say, I think I might be able to add something to your menu or fix, would there be anything that you would like to show them? Well, you know, it's always easy to criticize. I can't go to, to Daniel Bull in New York or to Percy and te tell you... Oh, criti tell criticize. You, We'd you, all like to know. Tell you 10 things wrong. Yeah. You know, that doesn't really add anything. But I'm sure that... Uh, no, I've had, uh, I've had some, uh, some good burger there. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's uh, 10 minutes too late, your bread is a little soaked or this, that too. It's always detail. Yeah. But uh, by definition... Uh, and the last time I went there, I didn't pay, so I'm not going to criticize it. <laughs> Jacques, do you make burgers at home? Oh, yes. Yeah, what do you, what I, do you I have like a great burger. I mean, the best burger is done with uh, um, uh, the shoulder, what is that part, you know, my name, I, I, I tend to forget name. In the Jewish uh, uh, tradition, the, the, the shoulder or the, the front, uh, what do you call it? The, the brisket. The brisket, brisket. Right. Yeah, the greatest one is the ground, the brisket. You know, the brisket has the amount of fat, a little more uh, lean meat in it, and it does one of the best burgers. We did that in one of the... I did a burger with Julia Charles in one of the shows, too, yeah, yeah. at that time. Yeah, that was fun. No, I love burger. I love everything. You can't see. <laughs> well, do you find... I know that you, um, you're still insanely active, and you are teaching and you are creating menus all the time. Have you noticed that through the years, is there, are the trends shifting more rapidly than they were before? Or are you seeing thing, are you seeing like Asian cuisine one year or ingredients that come in ebb and flow? What do you see, what are you seeing no. now that you think, oh, that's interesting, I didn't see that it, last year. It, it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, in New York, there is 24,000 restaurants. Yeah. From, I mean, I live in Queens years ago when I worked at Howard Johnson. And I went back to Queens a couple of years ago. They did a thing with me. The amount of Asian restaurants, Laotian, Cambodian, uh, different, of course, Chinese, Japanese, and so forth, is just amazing. And the price, really low. Brooklyn is amazing, too. I mean, yeah. now it's not only Manhattan. But uh, it's exploding at a speed at which, frankly, other professional chefs now for 
70 years. I mean, I left home in 1949, and home was a restaurant. So anyway, but uh, uh, I I think that I don't know anything about cooking. Sometimes <laughs> I go, it's true, you know. I mean, wow. things which come out the restaurant. I think we have the most diversified, probably the greatest cuisine in the world now because of that ethnicity that yeah. we have in America. That and I came back from Europe last week. I am culinary director of a cruise line, and we were two days in Portugal, and three days in, the, in the Spain, three days in France, three days in Italy. And there we ate well too. But uh, the diversity, you know, the ethnicity and the thing that we do here is kind of unique to this country. And, yeah, And exciting. It's beautiful. Yeah. And if you, because you are a teacher, uh, but now you've just told me that you sometimes feel like you don't know anything. If you were to go to a country and and find the master of that cuisine, is there a cuisine that you would love to immerse yourself in that you feel that you don't, that it maybe isn't in your... Um, Anywhere that I've been, you know, you cook with anyone. You know, the simple people who cook in the street, you know, mm. uh, and uh, you go to Vietnam and stuff, you have a pot, one of those soups. Or... Anyone, you will learn something if you keep your, your mind open. You, know, you always learn with anyone you cook with, whether professional or no professional. Sometimes you learn what not to do, but you learn something. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm supposed to ask you a question too, right? If you want, I'm more interested in you. Who needs to hear from me? You've done what? Three pastry book, right? Two I've, of them. Yeah, I've written uh, five, five now, six coming. One's a baking memoir about why the hell I became a baker. Did you say you have, did you say you have six books coming? No, the six, the six coming. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought you meant six more. I was like, it's about beans. (laughs) I have so many questions for you. The Genoise beans. So we used to make a big difference. Uh, Certainly when I was an apprentice between the, uh, you know, the cuisine patisserie boutique, you know, boutique pastry shop too. And what we serve in restaurants. For example, souffle, crepe, uh, crème caramel, those were uh, pastry from restaurants. That's to do with... uh, uh, And it has changed through the year. And now, after Nouvelle Cuisine, the presentation on the plate, we use never to cut cake. But now you have different type of cake, Mm -hmm. different type of sauce. What do you think of that? I mean, what what makes you tick, I mean, in in that world? Well, for for me, pastry has always been my great love because I was raised vegan and uh, my mother was very strict. But we were also... (laughs) My my mother's always in my head. Um, But but she also introduced us to Austrian um, cafes. Oh, yeah, right. So to me, that is where my heart lies. Yeah, the demos and the Hungarian-Austrian traditions and the German traditions of that meal at three o'clock that is cake. And so for me, the best cake are those, they are beautiful in presentation, but they are glorious in taste. And I think that is something that, growing up in the States, when we weren't in Germany or Austria, I was always disappointed going to those pastry shops where things look so inviting, but they tasted plasticine. Nothing ever tasted as good as it looks. And I think now, with how people are evolving in pastry and food in general, that has changed. Now things are tasting pretty darn good when you see them in the case. And the palate of people are China. That's the reason. Yes. Because I remember 
you know, at the New York Times with Craig Levon, uh, with a good friend of mine that got married at Craig Levon House 52 years ago, almost 53 now. And uh, at that time, an article in the New York Times, Boston Globe could kill a restaurant. Yeah. Now people are much more secure in their own taste. Mm -hmm. They go to their local restaurant, they like it too, whatever the food critics say, they don't care as much as it used to be. Yeah. And the quality is much better. I mean, it used to be cuisine that it went into wine, it went into bread, it went into cheese, it went, it's amazing quality of what we can it get. Did, it did, and I think that home cooks have such wonderful palates and they have equipment now and they have access to ingredients that they didn't have before. So I find that oftentimes home cooks with a few skills um, are able to replicate things that you can get in some beautiful places really well. Sometimes almost better because they don't have to buy in such large scale. They can really put their money into gorgeous ingredients and, and do their best. So I find, as an American, having eaten, wanting so badly to eat the, the orange cheese and the Twinkies, and that's pretty much all there was, now I still eat it. Now people are, are coming out with gore. And then we have wonderful teachers like you and Dory who show have led the path so that we are able to replicate these gorgeous things at home. I have a series of very quick questions for you two. Mm -hmm. oh. you, are, you will decide between the following things. You will tell me which you prefer. Pressure cooker or slow cooker? Pressure yeah. cooker. Yes. Pressure cooker. <laughs> <laughs> Cannellini beans or navy beans? <laughs> any beans. <laughs> any bean that you tell us, because you're the bean fancy. Braise or roast? What? Braise or roast? Oh, braise or roast, both. I mean, it's totally different. You have to choose. One is liquid, the other. You have to choose? <laughs> All right, braise. I braise. can read it. Yes. Braise, braise. This like here? Yeah. My Cooking answer? teacher or mm. mom? I, I, sometimes they're one and the same, right? Right. Is that a trick question? That was a trick question yeah. for you. Because uh, your mom, it sounds like you sort of equate pastry, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, maybe yeah. with rebellion a little bit? Oh, yeah. Because you were raised vegan and then you became a pastry chef? And a climber, because I had to climb really high to get to the, sh she would hide the sugar up high. And, wow. and I would just mash together butter and sugar. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I would eat that before she got home. Okay. <laughs> wow. It's really good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've done that on toast. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> so is I'll good. I'll take right. it. A little cinnamon. Perfect. That that is excellent. Okay, instant pot or Dutch oven? I, I, instant pot or Dutch oven? I'm not gonna. I'm not. Instant pot. I'm gonna say More yes. Yeah. I'm just gonna say yes because I like. Yes both. to both. Yeah. yeah. All right. First you braise, then you pressure cook. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All Excellent. Things. I think we need to move on to our next duet. That the time flew. I'm so oh, sorry. Okay. One more time. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Come back to the jury <laughs> while I call our next witnesses. <laughs> Bring your wine. Bring your wine. <laughs> so that was really great. I'm sorry it couldn't go longer. <laughs>
So now we have two more amazing witnesses for you. I think of this as the witness chair. You're cross-examining each other is what you're doing. Cross-examining. We have Carla Hall. Hello. Oh, I just want to make sure it was on. Hello. Yes. Hello. We have the fabulous Carla Hall, you all know and love, vivacious and wonderful. And we have the wonderful Molly Ye, who's lighting up Hello. screen. Yes. Hi. Is this on? It's on. It's on. Basically, two people who know how to light up a television screen. That is amazing. Um, so do it. Go. <laughs> so what's next? Uh, well, I just filed for unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just kidding. <laughs> but I did ask if I could. Um, I am figuring it out. So I'm the food contributor for GMA Day. Once a week I do so a cooking segment, which has been really, really fun. And I've been enjoying this place of my intention coming to me. So I tell people that I don't set goals, I set intentions. Yes, which and my is more of a feeling. It's more of a feeling. Striving and my, for a feeling, yes. Yes. I love that. And my intention has always been to be happy, mm -hmm. not to be rich, which has the not rich part has really worked out well. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm really... A lot of us, I think, are doing really gangbusters well. Gangbusters on that. <laughs> set that intention, that'll happen. Um, so I, I really am a lot of time people don't know that I really love theater and acting so I would like to roll that into what I do and so I'm I'm waiting for that thing so what foods are making you happy right now well because I have a cookbook on soul food yay um, that's making me very happy right now um, my, my cookbook comes out October 23rd and it's Carla Hall's soul food every day in celebration this is number three this is number three okay so how is this book different from the others I think this book is really personable this I mean well it's personable but it's also personal to me mm -hmm. I went through the south and growing up in the southeast I grew up in Nashville Tennessee but growing up, I think I took a lot for granted. And I took my food for granted. And I ran away from that food. And when I went to culinary school, I said, the last thing I want to do is soul food. And I will not fry chicken. And I want to do French food. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, so I was, I was looking at sauces rather than um, some of the things that we would do in soul food. And... And so I came back to that. After this trip through the South, I fell in love with soul food again. And, and I'm very proud to say that I love soul food. And so now in terms of ingredients, we both have types of food that we love cooking that we're really drawn to. And so I'm sure you have your go-to ingredients, your pantry staples. What do you wish would be more widely accessible mm. to someone like me in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where I have you know, a couple of grocery stores on a Target. Target is where I get my produce. What types of ingredients do I need to have access to and what types of things are, do you hope in the future will be available? Well, interestingly enough, when, whenever I'm cooking, I, I think that I use those ingredients that are anywhere, even in, in North Dakota, South Dakota. North. 
North. Cold is so cold. Oh. <laughs> you get used to amazing. it. Do you really? It's a dry cold. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so when, when the things that I make when I am feeling homesick, um, especially in New York City, I will do beans. I will do stewed Yay. beans, um, collard greens, and cornbread. <laughs> And I don't think that there's anything that you can't get anywhere. However, the one thing that I can't find, especially here in New York City, is white cornmeal. So when you're doing hot water cornbread, and, and I can't find white cornmeal. So I would like to be able to find white cornmeal everywhere. I love that. I would love white cornmeal mm -hmm. in Grand Forks. Have you ever heard of hot water cornbread? No. <laughs> I Knew Do you that. use hot water in it? <laughs> yeah, so hot water cornbread is something that Southerners know, and I think that it is a derivative of fufu, maybe coming from West Africa with cassava pounded, and then they would add hot water to it, and they would eat that as much as a vehicle to eat their stew. Mm -hmm. But when you, get, when you got to the South, that wasn't available, so they used white cornmeal, and they added hot water to it, and, and then some fat, and then you fry it, and so you eat that with beans. What and, kind of fat, butter? Mm. Uh, no, like lard or um, just canola oil. I'd use vegetable oil in yeah. mine, and I use a shortening. Let's talk about different fats. Yes. Oh. I just got really excited about different fats. It's all about the fat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What's your favorite fat right now? <sighs> oh. Well, my thighs. Just kidding. JK, JK, JK. Um, I, I think my favorite fat right now is a mixture of lard and butter. Mm -hmm. I read an article recently. Kosher. <laughs> kosher. It's, it's kosher. kosher. <laughs> I read an article recently telling me not to be afraid of shortening. What do you think of that? Well, what else did the article say? It just said that it's not that bad. <laughs> I got it right it said, it said, this is how this writer makes her um, pie crust, and right. it's the best pie crust. Mm -hmm. and, and the pie crust discussion is something that has always terrified me. And so it took me until last year to make my own pie crust. But, I mean, I, I love butter. I love Kurgold butter. But I love... Uh, <laughs> right? I, I have two pounds so in my good. fridge right now. Oh, my gosh. That's what you put on hot hollow when it comes out of the oven that is I could live on that but uh, tell me if if I'm correct in this but I see that a lot of people are giving themselves a break in the kitchen in terms of you know maybe not putting so much pressure on themselves to mm. cook such complicated things and um, and use you know, older staples like shortening, maybe going back to cream soup. Um, and I've seen a few articles recently. There was an article by JJ Good in Taste Cooking about how he has two identities in the kitchen, the one who wants to make the very fancy three-course supper and the one who has a daughter yelling at him not to get any garlic in her tomato sauce. And <laughs> which, one, which one wins? And so I, I recently, like... Uh, was won over by Melissa Clark's salt and pepper chicken, uh -huh. which is salt and pepper on a roast chicken. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, I kind of feel like we're recovering from an age of too muchery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Um, I agree. I think, yeah, I, th I think, and we had spoken about um, your photos that are gonna be in your next book about how they're not 
as contrived, they're less styled maybe, and um, we're coming out of this age of Instagrammable food and those crazy milkshakes with the burgers coming out of them. <laughs> yes. What do you think of that? I, I, whenever I'm doing a cookbook, I think about where you're gonna be able to get the ingredients, mm. how many pots and pans it will take to get that dish done, and if I can take one away, I do, because I'm also thinking about the cleaning up and yes. the dishes afterwards yes. and your entire time to do that dish. Sheet pan suffers. Right? One pot meals. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, I feel that if you want to do which is exactly what my book is about. If you want to do that celebration meal, and that is going to be once a month, and for some people, maybe it is going to be once a week. For some people, it is going to be twice a year. You should have that, um, you know, available to you. Mm -hmm. But most people want to get dinner on the table and feel good about it in about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's where the everyday recipes come. Yeah. And so I feel like... Um, there is a place for, for all of it. It is not about or, it is about and. Mm -hmm. So my, I, I'm all about the and. Choosing battles and, and having the Sunday big supper and then you know maybe the Monday night pasta with tomato sauce. Yeah, exactly. Or exactly. toast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think so. Um, I have a question for you. Yes. Okay, so for both of you really. So we're in this incredible moment of appreciation of, mul of multiple cultures. Um, how do you think that affects what people might want to eat and what you might want to be showing people what to eat? I think we're living in such a cool time right now where we can order anything on Amazon Prime. I, I live in the middle of nowhere on a farm and my pantry is filled with Zatar and mm. Sumac and harissa, and all of these things that I can order on the internet. I have good tahini, and, um, and we have, for the first time in history, we have access to so many different flavors from all over the world, and we can paint with all, so many more colors than we, you know, <laughs> than our the, um, older generations could, and so I love seeing new, you know what I love? I love that ingredients are being invented. You know, they're not just being discovered by traveling and they're not just being, um, you know, brought back from Europe in an empty suitcase. I bring back all my marzipan from like Germany. Like the Impossible Burger, is that what you're saying? Yes, the Impossible <laughs> Burger, aquafaba. I see, I think that we have only hit the tip of the iceberg with these new ingredients and these new foods. I see the Impossible Burger turning into like a ground beef substitute product. I right. see um, bacon being the next victim of becoming something that has been veganized. Um, I think that the idea of turning cauliflower into pizza crust, like, that's actually good. And what, you know, tw <laughs> I, I, I had one good one. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll make you my good one. Okay. But I just feel like at this point, you know, 20 years ago, in order to vegetarianize something, we had tofu. And now right. we, have so, we have beans. We have... Yay! Um, I don't Sorry. know what's in the Impossible Burger, but we have that. And we have all these different technologies to make uh, foods that we crave and comfort foods out of healthier ingredients, vegetable-based ingredients. And I think we're just going to continue down that path. Yeah, and I think also... and. 
And, and to that point, ingredients that you didn't that you didn't know about, for instance, sorghum grains, mm -hmm. millet, all of these mm -hmm. different grains that are available now that um, weren't as e as readily available years ago. So I I can do the book my soul food book today, a book that I couldn't do five years ago. That's fascinating. And I think that for me, because I, I have fallen in love with this food again, and I, I really want to broaden the idea of what soul food is, mm -hmm. and, and feeling very proud. Because most people will say, oh, well, soul food is fried chicken and greens and, and mac and cheese and, and um, smothered pork chops and candied yams. But it's more than that. Because I think with every cuisine, they have celebration foods. And usually there are people outside of that cuisine who are coming to the table. So you think very limited, you're very limited to what that food is. And I think you're thinking about it's, the celebration foods. There, yeah, there almost has to be like an ambassador of the foods to get, to have an entry point. Yes. What, what yes. are some dishes that are in your next book that are an entry point you feel for, or, or maybe some dishes that anchor the book? Well, I think that there's one, it's a, a tomato, a chunky tomato soup with roasted okra, which I took the idea of stewed okra and tomato, but it is lighter, but you still have the taste and the flavor of those things, and you roast the okra, and when you take that roasted okra and you put it into that brothy tomato soup, it permeates the broth immediately. So if you yeah. don't like okra, you uh -huh. don't like the slime, uh -huh. you would still like this. But you, it still feels like stewed tomato and okra. Uh -huh. And so is, is this a method, is this a traditional way of preparing it? Or you, this is something that you... It's something that I sort of re-envisioned. Because I, I kept asking myself, if my ancestors came over today from West Africa, what would they be eating? How would they be eating? And that is the energy that I put and the intention that I put into the book. Mm -hmm. Because we do have a very different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, but I don't want to chuck all of the history and everything that we have done for this, oh, let's order all of these different things. I think that, I really think that African-Americans should understand our food mm -hmm. and they should understand that soul food is our cuisine, like Korean food or Chinese food or French food or um, um, Italian food, whatever, right? But then once you know it, you can go off and explore it and then sort of change things. I'm so excited. What do you both think about this? You're, you're talking about the traditional uh, reinventing of a traditional food. Just makes me wonder what you each think about this um, tension between um, adherence to tradition and the awful A word, um, authenticity. Um, and but but then a compulsion to want to re-envision, make things feel modern. Do you feel the tension in your work between those two things? <laughs> I mean, I'll add sprinkles to Hala any day. <laughs> I, I mean, it, for me, it's just, it is important to know what traditional Jewish food and what traditional Chinese food is and to learn about that and to, you know, in, a, in anything. I think in music school, we had to learn music history. Um, for food, it's really important to learn food history and to learn where all these dishes came from. But... My gosh, like, I just love trying new things and experimenting and stuff. And so I, I never, ever want to feel, you know, right. bogged down. And if something doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it tastes good, like, 
why not? Yeah. Right. Well, exactly. But I think that if you have the basics, if you have the the classic thing, then you can go outside the line. Yeah. But if you did away with, if nobody is teaching the classics, then you can't come back to them. For instance, I tell you, Jacques, what I want you to go, where I want you to go and teach the people. Oh, not to put you on the spot, but, okay, your mic is off. But, soft, scrambled eggs. Oh, the best. The you best. cannot go and get a soft, scrambled eggs at most places, right. and it is so infuriating. Right. You I just tried two days ago. You have to know the rules to break the rules, right? That's right. It. Yeah, you have yeah. to know the rules to break yeah. the rules. Yeah. Well, you guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Come back to the jury, our next witnesses. I call to the stand. We have Letty Teague, who is a incredibly incredibly accomplished and respected wine journalist for the Wall Street Journal, multiple award winner. And we have Natalka Burian, who is a bar owner and, um, and author. And they are going to talk about drinking. One of my, one of my favorite, one of my favorite topics. It's about time. My favorite topic. No, right? We were saying we should have gone first because everyone wants a drink before they get started. And yet everyone's drinking water, which is rather sad. Mm. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here comes some booze. Oh, we are, oh thank goodness. Oh, here's, here's oh no, the I meant the audience, not us. That would be very oh. selfish. No. Um, I feel like the first beverage we should talk about is. Beer, right? I guess so. <laughs> no. um, actually, which I'm... I like beer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Do you I mean, like beer? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> actually, I don't like beer. Uh, I don't drink beer. As you, if you read my column, I never write about it either, and that's because... Um, and you know what? Just uh, coincidentally, and you can talk about this in a talk, we don't have to keep to beer, but I saw beer sales are falling um, and have been falling for quite some time. And I saw in your... Bar, you don't do much beer business, right? We don't do a lot of beer. I think, um, you know, I think uh, it is, there are people who love their beer, and there are people who, I feel like the artisanal movement, right. like the craft beer it, making I mean, is really... They're just more and more breweries. People are building yes. breweries. There's such a growth, uh, I was reading, like it just, they keep building them. And actually I was on the North Fork of Long Island, and, and more wineries are, are starting breweries, which is... That's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know about the, the winery starting brewery. Right. How, did, you, did you get to try? The no, because again, see under, I don't like beer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that not. there are some beers, like there are sour beers I know that are very popular right now. Yeah. Um, there are, I think there's certainly a saturated market of these kind of craft breweries, but I don't, I don't see them declining too much. I think right. people... Will always like beer. I suppose. I mean, statistically, <laughs> yeah. But um, well, of course, you are all about empowering. I love this—the idea of empowering people to drink cocktails. Which the, the whole idea that you need to be empowered to drink is such a foreign concept to me. It's like there is the there is the bottle of wine, there is the corkscrew, and and thereby you are empowered. Um, it's no. really that simple. <laughs> no, but I think it's more like yes, you should be empowered to drink cocktails, but you should be empowered to make cocktails ah, too. Right. I think there is like a prohibitive sort of you have to be in a certain environment. To right. get a good cocktail, you have to be in a you know in a bar with a bartender with a mustache to be serving you like you know even in yours in like not in ours but in you know serving you some sort of like stirred you know perfect spherical ice 
you know, the, the whole the whole nine yards have to be right. in place, and I that's simply not true. Where they're slapping the herbs. Yes, exactly. You that's, that? that's you I can slap the basil I, before slap, they put listen, it in your body. Slapping herbs. That's a good My trick. I, you know, listen. That's a good. That's a good take home. Slapping the, clapping the. Okay. Um, <laughs> know the rules to break the rules, Joe. That's right. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's more about sort of understanding how something is made and being able to make it yourself and not being afraid to ask for how you want it. And like, I think that's sort of where the power comes in in that regard. But wait a second, Letty, because I have a lot of wine questions for you. Um, Let's see what I can do. Yes. Being in, the, being in the bar business, people are always asking about wine and I'm always very guilty because I'm always trying to learn more and I bought that giant wine Bible and I read a couple, you know, I, I read about the champagne. Bible. You. you know, there's, I, I feel like I read like one section. Right. Is that why your wine list is very short? Yes, in your bar? yes. It's, 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 but the one wine, there are two wines actually that I want to ask you about that people are asking me, me about when they come in all list? the time. I hope not. Okay. Not on our list because I don't know anything about them, so you're going to have to enlighten me. But natural wines mm. and orange wines. Orange wines, Oh, yeah. I was afraid you'd get to that. You live in Brooklyn, so of course, yeah. <laughs> so people are drinking them. You know what? Those are two things. Well, orange, orange wine, I think it had a moment, and I'm happy to say I think it's fading. Um, I don't know if people here. Sorry, that's my opinion. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. How, how many, can everyone raise their hands? How many people have actually had orange wine and... Okay, and how many people have had orange wine and enjoyed it? No. <laughs> Smaller number. You know, the texture. I feel like, you know, I, I get that they, they want to be texture, but it just, it, there, it's just a fundamental disconnect. So I, I, if, if this is a trend question, I would say, and not just my own personal um, belief, although I, I do believe it and it has come true, <laughs> not that it's true, I think less interest in, in orange wine. Natural wine, I mean, we could be here all night, and I don't think anyone's, any of us wants to talk about natural wine all night, but it, like the, the, the de definition of what that is, is, uh, you know, it, it, it's, like the, it's like the definition of the word terroir, you know, there, there is no translatable, it's, it's many, it's a, it, 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 it contains a multitude, um, and I think that the, the bottom line of what is the, the, the best development of that so-called natural wine is that, is that there is a lot more um, attention paid to, to behaving in a responsible manner. You know, of, of not, um, uh, you know, and not, and not uh, um, uh, relying upon uh, insecticide and not, you know, and, and fungicides and things that are unnatural and, and obviously detrimental, um, but also, you know, being practical. And, and, and I think so much is made of that that is not actually uh, truly natural. Like, I, there's actually, uh, my favorite moment of this, there's something called sustainable, which if you want to, 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 and this is a word that's absolutely completely devoid of meaning when I got a press release from a, a champagne company that said, you know, we are, we are sending, we're no longer sending press releases on paper because we are sustainable winery. <laughs> anyway, and they had owls in the vineyard. That was another one that was sustainable. Um, so I think, yes, natural in the sense of, of, of intelligent and thoughtful and, and, and um, uh, with, a, with, a, with a goal towards producing wine that is, is responsibly made. But what is natural is a, is a very fungible word. That's so funny. So the person who claimed to be a natural wine expert who told me what natural wine was said, and I quote, you just put everything in a bucket. You just put all the, just everything in a bucket and you leave it alone. And I was and like, Did you ever drink that right. person's wine that became of that? I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I could make wine. I don't know. No, there, there's a reason why people are the ones that make the wines, not the wines that, and I wanted them to be the ones to do that. Wait, so where are the most exciting wines for you coming from right now? Um, coming from, you know, it's really, the, the, the beautiful thing about, about the world of wine now is that there is, 
there is so much uh, interesting wine made in so many different places. Like, for example, I was in, uh, and I think in America in particular, and one thing that I'm, I'm very impressed with is the quality of wines in, in unusual states in America, well, unusual, which is to say unanticipated states, like Michigan, to have a, some really nice Rieslings in Michigan, you know, to have a really great Blaufrankisch in New Jersey. Um, Let's hear it for New Jersey. Like, to have, have, and actually, and also uh, um, non, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, noble varieties, which is to say, you know, um, Vidal Blanc. And, and Chambersan, which, I mean, Chambersan is like the Pinot Noir, it's like America's Pinot Noir, it's a, it's a hybrid, and it has a lot of the same characteristics, makes a lovely rosé. So I think that there is more, uh, uh, there's more uh, knowledge about winemaking and more, and more willingness to experiment, because, you know, and especially in the city that we're living in, I mean, there's just so much openness, as, as winemakers from Europe always tell me, you know, New York is the greatest market, not only because we have so many outlets, but because of the openness of, of, of New Yorkers you know, and, 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 and a desire. And a variety of cuisine. I mean, just the, the talk that came before us, I yeah. think that there's so many pairings to be right. made. Talk about right. pairings. But it's... It, oh, now, oh, you know, I was hoping you'd get away from that. <laughs> I hate that word. No. Um, you know, because I feel like it, it, it puts you in this position of responsibility. Now I have this responsibility to figure out how these two things go together. Um, and I will tell you, I, I just had dinner with a very famous... Uh, chef last week, and and he's a famous for his seafood, and um, and I brought along this really nice white burgundy, and we ended Eric up Eric Repair by chance. <clears throat> You're close, <laughs> but I brought along David Pasternak. You're not not as close. Okay. <laughs> but he, but I thought, and I brought it along because I thought we're going to this restaurant that was BYO, and it wasn't. So we, he ordered steak, and I said, I have a white burgundy. And he said, that's okay. And I, okay. And, and it turned out to be a little too over-oaked. Over so the oak, which is a great thing, is oak, actually oak and you know, white wine that's oaked can act like a, a red wine. Um, so we just sort of closed our eyes. And, and, and my point being that I think people spend way too much time talking about that. And here's a guy who also knows wine and, and is a fantastic chef. And um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, don't I, I think that the preciousness of it will, will, will dissipate because it's just too great a burden, I think, to think to. Maybe that's just, again, my hopeful no, that's, belief. That's uh, heartening. I like hearing that. Are you, you feel burdened by that, too? Like, I mean, I, well, I feel like being in the industry, or like working in bars all the time, right. people are always asking me to go out to dinner. They give me the wine list. I'm like, I don't want to you see care. that. Like, you do that. I don't, it's a lot of responsibility. And, well, in terms of complication, I have to say, I was looking at your, and this is a question for you, um, prognosticating as well. Um, you know, looking at names of cocktails, I like, mm. I mean, that's why wine is really simple. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and then there's this name. I have to write, I wrote it down because I could never remember it. It was so long in your, in your, in your bar. Um, now it'd be really, oh, well, Q, okay, all right, this is embarrassing. It is a short name, sorry. But uh, one was Spider in a, Spider in a Cup. Um, uh, that isn't one of the examples of the long names. Um, she does have longer names. Uh, but of what goes, Night Silo, and no, it's the ingredient list that's very long. Um, the names are very, you have no idea what that is. Like, who would know what, do you have, would anyone like to guess what the liquor in Spider in a Cup is? Hmm? Venom. The Spider so, in the Cup. Will, will fanciful names, yes. will they go away or will they only get more complicated? Mm. Are they, I think they'll get more complicated. Well, if not more complicated, more, um, I mean, the reason that we go, we go a little crazy with the names is because 
our mission is really to evoke a vibe. Like we want to evoke an experience. When a guest sits down in front of a cocktail, the spider in the cup is named the spider in the cup because it's garnished with a torched, um, a torched uh, cardamom pod. So it's like this, it, it looks like an insect floating in your drink. Um, but it smells really good. It's obviously not an insect, but it, um, but it, it sort of the, the smokiness, the drama, there, there's like a, there's like a, a feeling. Right. Um, and the name I think sort of lends itself to giving each guest that feeling and the ingredients too, but then also it's a conversation starter. So if you're on a date and it's a really good sort of like entry point into a conversation. Or so you would never order the harpooned heart if you're on a date. Would anyone? Or, or you would, or you would. If you were a Simpsons fan, This totally ingredient would. list, which I don't know, the, 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 co the cocktails, which again is why I know nothing about cocktails, because I feel like it's so, con vodka, coconut, almond, vanilla, mint, lime, pineapple, and pepper, Corn syrup. syrup. Oh, that sounds so Pepper good. It's really good. It's really, really good. And we garnish it. Only it's like anathema, but we garnish it with like a, a tr an actual chocolate, like a truffle. Well, I'm wondering about, you mentioned yeah. garnish a minute ago, and I'm wondering how much you think drink trends are driven by the visual. And, and I want you both to answer that because I think the orange wine, like the rosé, is, is part of that trend. You know, that looks, you can't tell a wine is natural in, a, in an Instagram picture, but you can tell that it's orange. And, uh, and the same thing with the garnishes. How much do you think that affects where things are going? I don't, I don't know if it affects where things are going, but I hope that people, again, at home, will be more empowered to garnish their, their drinks that they serve to their guests because it's like such a lovely, thoughtful gesture that costs you very little time. Um, and I, I really do think like if you, get a, if you get like a beautiful garnish on a drink that's even mediocre, it's like getting a little tiny flower arrangement delivered to you. Like it's really, it's like a lovely feeling. And it's like, why not? Right. I hope people keep doing it. I, I don't. I don't garnish my wine, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. Little paper umbrellas. You have like a whole jar. But I feel like I want a parasol next time I uh, um, have but a glass of But Letty, the you mentioned the drink names being complicated, but wine. But yeah. remembering the names of wines and the wineries like and the years Merlot. and the grapes. I mean, Zinfandel. Super complicated. Do you see people trying to trying to well, do anything geography, to make it easier? Yeah. Um, you know what? But that is that is the entire business of, of wine books um, are making things simpler in wine, and I'm actually opposed to that. I think sh things should be more complex. <laughs> now, but I think like, you know, to the point of, of what um, Carla and you were saying earlier, understanding the history of, of food and understanding of where things came from, and and so I feel like there is you you have a certain obligation if you do truly care about wine um, to to understand and. Uh, uh, um, why this wine is called Sancerre and not called Sauvignon Blanc, and what Sancerre is compared to Puy Fumé, and, and Puy Fumé, you know, uh, and, and what Vouvray is compared to Savonnière, is you understand, you know, the, the, the region and the, the soil, and, and not to get all of that, but at least have a rudimentary understanding of, okay, Loire Valley, Sauvignon Blanc, and, and that's sort of what it tastes like, and then there's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So I, I think that, that um, I, and I think that because so many people are becoming so much more interested in wine um, with that, you know, with that, that uh, uh, amplification of, of just accessibility of wine, there will, and maybe this is again hopeful, I'm thinking because, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist rather than a prognosticator, um, so I report on what is actually happening as opposed to <laughs> what I imagine or wish to happen. Um, but I, 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 I like to believe there is, there is, there is, a, there is a, a growing and deeper level of understanding than just, you know, um, I'd like my wine to be white. Do you think travel affects the way 
um, people think about wine and what they know about wine and cocktails too. I, I think that, that it can't help but you know when you when you go to a place and you see it and and um, uh, it's funny. I don't know if you all read that. If it's like. Too many people are traveling now. Like there are cities that want want to like you know throw people out of them. There are too many people showing up. There are too many people. <laughs> there are too many people showing up in 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 wineries well, like Napa. You know they're overrun and 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 now. In fact, I have the exp experience of trying to go to Piemonte, and they're they're saying you know truffle season. They're saying it's been discovered. You know, it, it, like, too many people are coming to Piemonte. Too many people are going to Burgundy. Um, which I guess is a good thing that now people are so compelled to actually visit wine regions at one time were inaccessible. Um, they should just start I, serving beer and then fewer well, people there you would go. come. And then everyone will leave, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think that's about all, we, all the time we have for our drink duet. Thank you very much. Now we have a couple more powerhouses for you to finish off our sequence. People say eat dessert first, and we ate a little dessert earlier, but we're really going to eat dessert now. Woo. Yep. Uh, <laughs> we need so, to get that scarf adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> so we have incredible people. I won't go over their whole bios or even much of them because I can't even begin to start. But Dory Greenspan is legendary cookbook author and baking maven. Is legendary short for old? No. No. <laughs> Dory, you were born a legend. Yes. You were born a I legend. I agree. <laughs> and Christina Tosi just presiding over an amazing, growing empire of, bake, of fabulous bakeries. So thank you both. Thank you. We're super excited to be here. Um, so Dory and I had a little chat on the phone last week yeah. as she just came back from France. And you were just leaving L.A. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, we're busy. Um, and... We were talking about a lot of different things when we thought about the word crave. And before I tell you what we started talking about, the thing that occurred to me that I wanted to know the most about this legend, and legend is about the rap sheet of accomplishments. Yeah, yeah. 13 cookbooks. 13. I, feel, I feel like we're like, we're like girls and pals, and I'm like, oh my gosh, 13 cookbooks. More James Beard Awards than I can count on one hand. And I was like, what does this woman, this legend, crave? Like, what do you crave? You know, I crave, I, I, I wonder if it's, let me think about it. I don't think that what I crave has changed all that much over the years. I really love simple foods. So it's really all about flavor. And I was thinking that as I was working on this last book, that over the years, my cooking and my baking has gotten simpler. That when I first, when I first, I taught, I, I taught myself to cook, I taught myself to bake, um, and all I wanted to do was like broke stuff. I wanted to <laughs> learn like how to make the fanciest, you know, sugar flowers, yeah. how to get the buttercream to go exactly right. I wanted to make croquembouche, and I wanted to make coulbiat. Now that's not what I want to do. <laughs> it's all, it's just gotten simpler and simpler. Yes. And you? Um, I, I'm real funny about what I crave. I, I crave, I, I grew up, uh, my family's all from Ohio. I was born in Ohio. We were raised between like Ohio and a suburb of Washington, D.C. 
And I crave, I crave the simple foods of love, like that I remember feeling like I was first discovering life with reckless abandon. So I crave like the American classics, like macaroni and cheese, crave every time. Cheese pizza. I still as a grown up, I'm like, I just want cheese on my pizza. That's all I want. I want like chocolate chip cookie dough, either like mm. out of the bowl, like it just got mixed, or my grandma's like warm oatmeal cookie. Those are the things, Oof. they fuel so many things about me. And the thing I loved about like fangirling over your newest cookbook, and I showed you like a dork over here because I took a picture of it this morning <laughs> as I was going through it again, because um, it's not on the shelves yet, but you sent me a copy, was this quote from you, which out of, this is your 13th cookbook, and you write these recipes, most of which are simple, turn out food that's comforting, satisfying, inviting, and so often surprising. I love when there's something unexpected in a dish, especially when it's in a dish we think we know well. And I feel mm. like that's the perfect segue to what we crave, but then also this question that we asked each other on the phone a week ago, which was, what makes a great dessert? And, and so I just want to back up. Because, yes. Um, <laughs> I was just listening, and all of you should listen to this. So Christina was the guest on a new podcast called Start to Sail. Yeah. And except for the fact that she's so good at what she does, I wrote to her and said, you should give it all up. You should just become an inspirational speaker. You could sell out stadiums around the world. <laughs> and so Christina on this podcast talks about building the milk bar business. And she talks about herself. And I've thought about this from when I met you and I, it came back to me as I was listening to the podcast. You have very specific memories. You can really recall tastes and textures. When Christina talks about food, you can, you can feel her as, you know, reaching back to your childhood. And you've managed to take those taste memories and make them cake or make them <laughs> cookies. You've managed to incorporate. And to me, it's really interesting, and I think that maybe we all do it to one degree or another as we're developing, whether it's recipes um, for cookbooks or dishes for restaurants, but we all draw from what we know and what we love, and we develop our own style. Yeah. And we're, it's like we're sentimentalists, but we're also creators and innovators, and it's this kind of intersection between being sentimental and having very, very simple points, starting points, and then this, this like nonstop desire to want to either bring something that is unexpected, that makes it fun, that piques curiosity, that like makes your taste buds tickle and dance, um, and that makes you feel both emotionally attached to what you're eating or what you're, what you're baking, and yet still feel renewed and refreshed and that you're discovering something you know anew. So I think that's really important, the idea of discovering just something so that, that you did something unexpected. And so when I'm working on recipes, I'm always trying, I mean, because I, I often look back, so I look at classics, and I think, what, what would make something pop? Because you know, if you've had the same dish over and over, you, you, you kind of know what you're getting. The joy of finding a different spice 
or a texture that got tucked into something when you didn't expect it. And I think that makes food exciting to eat, but it also, as a creator, makes it a whole lot more fun to make it. You know, a girl's got to have fun in the kitchen. That's right. Um, but Sorry. it's also like this hidden message that you're giving when you do that, because how many times have you eaten something that you think you know that it's going to be exactly a certain way, and you eat it, and as you're eating, that moment happens, that unexpected moment happens, and all of a sudden you're like, I get it. I get it, I get what you're doing, I get what you're saying to me through this food, through this little hint of spice, or this added texture. And all of a sudden, like food is, is we make food to share, we make food. Only, well, especially dessert. Especially dessert. Especially, I mean, so for all the years that I've been doing this, I have tried to make dessert one of the major food groups. <laughs> <laughs> you have. No, I, I, th I think you almost have. I mean, cookies for breakfast, you all, you're almost there. I'm almost there. But, but really, the only, the only reason we make dessert, there are two reasons. One is for pleasure, and the other is to share. I mean, yes. that we bake in batches. Yes. We have to, you know, if we're alone, we'll cook to feed ourselves. Um, and we may cook something really wonderful, but when we bake, it's really to to yeah. share. And when you think about dessert, I mean, even the simplest cookie is complex. I mean, you have to think about texture. Texture, what makes a great dessert is the same thing as what makes a great cookie. Texture for sure. Uh, texture is so important. Yes, the composition, always texture, flavor, and where that flavor is going to come from, because sometimes the flavor should be built into the texture, sometimes not. I sometimes find it hard to separate texture and flavor, because Fair sometimes enough. the texture is what makes you love something, and it holds the flavor. So mm -hmm. if you add nuts to something, you've got to chew those nuts, and so the flavor lasts mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. um, Can I sugar, because it's dessert. Got How much sugar? sugar? How little sugar? Fat? Fat. Fat. <laughs> Duck fat you use in some of your dessert. So, no. No? I haven't. No? I did only once. So, wait, so oh, we don't have time for this, but there's a dessert, a croustade that's made in Gascony. And the dough that is a very, very thin dough, it's almost like phyllo. And the layers are brushed with duck fat. Yes. I did it once. And? It was delicious. It was great. <laughs> and it had, it had, oh, this is all coming back. had prunes soaked in Armagnac. So you had. Well, come on. The, right. Come on. That was, that was a good dessert. Yeah. Dory, come on. Yeah. Thank Joe, you. Joe, I feel like we interrupted you. No, I was, trying, I was trying to interrupt you, <laughs> and you wouldn't let me. You're very oh. good. You're so good. <laughs> no, I, when you were talking about the finding the little thing that leads to the surprise in the nostalgic, comforting dish, I was just dying for some examples. From, from each of you, like when have you done that and like what has it been and, and, when, and, and are there things that you haven't done that you think you might do? Oh, I hope there are things I haven't done. That girl, you're, well, you're unstoppable I mean, as far as I'm there concerned. There definitely so, are, but I mean what's on your mind in terms of those kinds of things now that you maybe haven't shared yet? So this isn't dessert, but um, I just added walnuts to meatballs and spaghetti because oh. Meatballs, I mean, we all love them, but you chew them and you chew, I mean, they're just, they're not all that interesting. And so I thought, if they had something surprising in them, if they beans. had walnuts, right? Beans. So, beans, <laughs> you know, if they had, no. <laughs> 
Sorry, <laughs> Joe. No, but so adding, adding that little yeah. bit of texture so that I love when you're eating something and each bite is a little different, yeah. right? Mm. So I don't like chocolate chips. I like chunks of chocolate. And I like the dust when you're chopping chocolate and it gets yes. dusty and you put the dust in and it makes the cookie tweedy. Yeah. But it also means that each bite has a different ratio of... For sure. It you know ratio, when you right? got a chunk and you know when you got a little dust and you know you didn't get either and it's it's it it makes your brain come alive like that's what good food does it's that pop it's, it's that, that pop. pop so speaking of pop your popcorn cake yeah good Give me some, girl. That was the best transition all night. Um, popcorn cake is like a great example. Yeah. yeah. To even answer your question, Joe, whenever we're in the kitchen at Milk Bar, it, like the number one rule is what's the point of inspiration? What is the point of inspiration? The number two rule is you can never make something that's already existed because we're not here to compete with... Uh, like my grandma's oatmeal cookie because she's only going to be the one that makes it exactly the way because there's something about her touch. There's something about the way she makes it and it feels when she shares it with me. All of these things. It's, it's, not, it's, it's certainly about texture and flavor and this and that, but it's also about who's making it and the time and the place and so on. So our rule, our first two rules are basically that. And what we love doing is going, okay, well, what is it about popcorn? What is popcorn cake, which is part of um, my new cookbook that's coming out around the same time as yours. Um, October 23rd, same as Carla's. It's called Milk Bar All About Cake. Wow. It's a big day. It's a good season for cookbooks outright. But um, it's, the recipe is in that cookbook, and I start to tell the story about, well, it was winter. It was, you know, a few years ago, it was winter at Milk Bar, and we're all, like, in our turtlenecks and beanies that we refuse to take off. Um, and we're sitting around talking about, like, okay, well, what, what do we want to, like, what do we want to work on right now? We're kind of, like, we have that gloom of the winter that you get sometimes when it's February, and it doesn't feel like spring's coming anytime soon. And we started joking around that what we were all doing with our free time was basically like bundling up and going to the movie theaters and watching sometimes one, usually two, sometimes three movies. <laughs> and the beauty of just like digging into what feels like a bottomless cup of super buttery popcorn and then like the slurp of a Coke and maybe the handful of a bunch of gummy bears. And so we started going like, okay, so what does this mean? We all started getting really excited and really emotional and having that, that craveable moment and trying to figure out how we wanted to translate it into a dessert. And one of my favorite vehicles for flavor, though something that I don't, didn't always crave, is layer cake. And it's because I had to figure out what layer cake should mean to me to be super craveable, which is a long story. But, but layer cake, the way we build them at Milk Bar, provides so many different literal layers for flavor and flavor combinations and texture. And so we went down this whole rabbit hole of trying to bring in not just buttered popcorn, but Coca-Cola <laughs> and gummy bears and maybe Thin Mints. And we were like, this is no. This is a no. It's a yes in the dark when no one's looking and you're watching, you're like watching The Rock's latest like action adventure movie. It's a no in terms of balance of flavor in a layer cake. But what we ended up doing was narrowing in on like the beautiful layers of flavor 
the slightly salty bits of buttered popcorn and what fresh corn feels like and what caramel corn is and basically writing a love letter to Two. this craveable moment of popcorn as a layer cake. And I'll stop talking because I no, get really no. excited <laughs> about these stories, but, but that's what this, we do. But this is what's really exciting about desserts. It's, what ex it's what's exciting about cooking that you can, it's, inspiration can come from anywhere and how you can build an idea and how just seeing something. I mean, I often feel that um, a lot of the recipes in my new book, Everyday, Everyday Dory, which is coming out October 23rd. We're all, just, wait, wait, right. the same day? Right. Should, oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. We should just have a party. You should. Um, Natalka's book is coming out October 23rd as well? It's yeah. a That's good crazy. day, Tuesday. It's going to be a hot Tuesday at the bookstores. <laughs> um, yeah, Ina Garten. Oh. Also, October 23rd. It's a is good she day. Here? Um, no. But so, so uh, you, I just lost it. You know, so some of, a lot of the recipes came about by accident because I'm living in Connecticut most of the time now. When I'm not in Paris. Um, <laughs> and I'm like an hour round trip away from stuff. So I'm cooking or I'm baking and I'll open the pantry or the fridge and recipes come about because there's something in there, right? That you say, oh, I could use that. I hadn't planned to. If I weren't so far away from the supermarket, I might have made something else. Yeah. But that's how cranberries got put in my beef stew because they were just like a sad little quarter bag of them in the you know shriveling up in the freezer and I thought tang you know it'll give Acid. that tart acidy tangy flavor yeah um that's how I ended up making that that eaten mess yeah with with again with cranberries I had made a cranberry jam and it was sitting in the refrigerator and I thought so that the ideas we never really know where they're yes. going to come from yes. and the fun is being able to grab the idea yes. and turn it into something. It's the same theme in a beautiful way it's the same thing that you've heard a few times before already tonight which is you learn the rules and then without learning the rules and learning the ins and the outs and the hows and the whys you can't actually know how to break them or know how to improvise. It's a little bit like jazz. If we could all fancy ourselves jazz musicians, <laughs> you wouldn't know why cranberries might work without knowing that a dish is really successful when it has acid, when it has sweetness, when it has color, when it has a pop of texture. Yep. So there simple. You go. We solved it, Joe. I love it. it for you. <laughs> Thank you. I have a few thousand other problems in the world that I want to get you on uh, to solve. Uh, but we have some questions from the audience. For, before I start, are there, does anybody else, did anybody else fill out a card that wasn't able to pass it in? If so, hold up high, 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 so she can see right here and right there. So I will start. Um, okay, there's one for you, Jacques. Me? Yes. Is his mic on? Yeah, mic is on. Oh, okay. Okay, so the question is, please talk about this current emphasis on authenticity as though if dishes aren't made in one really specific, pure way, that they can't be right. Doesn't cooking evolve? Absolutely. I mean, there is no authenticity in cooking, you know. 
I mean, the way your mother cook, the way your grandmother cook, your friend cook, uh, you get influenced, you change. And I was saying, you know, after more than half a century in America, I'm probably, uh, I'm often looked at as the quintessential French chef. Then my wife is Puerto Rican Cuban, born in New York. So I do a black bean soup with banana on top and cilantro. Then I do a New England femme chowder or whatever it may be. So after 50 years or more than I've been here, I'm probably the quintessential American chef, which is what we do here. So no, I, I'm not going on for really authenticity. I'm going on for taste. If it tastes good, and preferably taste for me is much more important than, the, than look. I yeah. think any food critic should be blind. Yeah, That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> but uh, yes, what was the question? That was it, you yeah. got it, okay. you got it. You totally, you totally got it, thank you. Um, okay, here's a question for Natalka. Um, as a bartender, I love making a classic margarita. What are your favorite classics to make and what are your favorites to reinvent? Oh, this is such a good question. I, my favorite classic cocktail is not like, is a champagne cocktail mm -hmm. because it's so easy. It's literally a demerara sugar cube that you soak with a few drops of Angostura bitters in the bottom of a beautiful glass or it can be like a plastic cup and you pour some sparkling wine in there and it is the most festive, beautiful, bracing, but also like it has so much depth, but it's also very bright um, because of the sparkling wine. I love a champagne cocktail. But in terms of classics, like a margarita, for example, I always think about swapping out the spirits. Oh my gosh, I'm really leaning into this mic. Um, <laughs> But in like, for example, a margarita made with mezcal would be amazing. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. um, I mean, I think that's a great place to start when you're inventing a classic, reinventing a classic is just swap out a spirit and see what happens. Great, great. Um, so we got this in multiple ways. So I'll just throw this out. Maybe I'll throw this to Carla. Um, what do you think of meal kits like Blue Apron? It, well, again, going back to the intention, the reason that that company or companies like it or meal kits have a place is because people are busy. And um, so either you're not going to cook at all or you're going to cook and somebody's going to give you all the ingredients. And I think that if you get the meal kit, I think you should feel free to change it up. But I think it's better than the alternative in going out to eat or to a fast food place. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So these are for our bakers, Dory, Gesina, and Christina. What is the one thing that you never, ever bake from scratch? Anybody? You bake, you'd bake anything. Filo? Filo? Yes, I do filo. You buy filo, right? No. You make it? You make, make the filo. But I'm a German, so it's, it's, it's strudel. So you'd make so the filo, though. Okay. It's, it is beautiful. <laughs> it's good. King, so at King Arthur Flower, I taught a class on strudel, which is filo. And people can walk by and see what you're doing. And usually you're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. People were just, what the hell is going on? Because there are people just like feeling up this dough, literally covering tables with it. And everybody has this expression of utter joy and glory because it feels good, it's beautiful, and when you start, you think this is, this is an impossibility. Because I'm telling you, this whole table, read through it. If there's some rips, don't worry about it. 
but it's going to happen. And then, you know, there's, there's the fear. Then you start feeling it's very tactile and, it's, and it starts moving. And then people are, they start just rubbing it, moving it. <laughs> taking are we still talking about baking? They, <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Make your own phyllo. And phyllo is essentially the same thing. It's, it's wonderful and tactile, and it's incredibly satisfying. I've taught an eight-year-old how to do it. I taught wow. an eight-year-old, and I just said, this is what we're doing. You pull it. She did it. Oh, easy peasy. Wow. Yeah. Do you can have you something teach Christina? Yes. I can teach anybody. <laughs> you know, I was trying to think through it, and I don't know. I, I can't come up with anything. I mean, I've gone so far as to, like, run out of butter at Milk Bar. I was like, get out the heavy cream. We're making, yeah. we're going to learn how to turn some butter. Right. <laughs> but I think that's the beauty. I think it's the same reason as a chef, if you're working with produce or proteins, understanding the true origins of of something that maybe you might buy when you're in a hurry rather than make it from scratch. I think that the, it's those things that seem like they're the most difficult. My first pastry chef was an Austrian pastry chef. He used to make me do that all the time. <laughs> Understanding, do, you, do you bake croissant? Yeah. Uh, how to pull strudel dough. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Do you do you bake croissant? I went to the FCI, which is now the ICC. Um, and I remember when I first learned how to make laminated dough, I would just go home to my tiny little apartment in New York City and make it and then just put it in the freezers. I made puff so pastry that I could, every day yeah. for 12 days yeah. because I wanted to learn how to make Yeah, it. I think yeah. you're dealing with some really dorky bakers that really go a little too deep. <laughs> I love it. Okay, there's, a, there's an, another dory question, which is, because I was thinking this too, you posted on Instagram from Paris at lunchtime today. How are you able to- Oh, that was my, I took that my last day and put that photo. How are you able to teleport through time and space? <laughs> She's a legend. So, yeah, and, oh, yes. so yeah, you know, I realized when I posted that, so I took that picture on, I needed a copy, a proofreader or a copy editor. I took that picture on my last day in Paris, which was Thursday. No, it was, I took it Wednesday. Um, and then I posted it today, and should it said my last day in Paris? Oh. Yeah, I needed. Yeah. You lied. I needed some. <laughs> no, no, she was saying this was my. This is what the la my last day in Paris right. looked like. Funny question. <laughs> I told you I'm a prosecutor. Okay. Um, Law school. Let's see. Okay. All right. This is a good one. This is a good one for Molly. What role do you think social media has played in changing the way we experience food? And the parentheses, food porn. Oh, gosh, <laughs> yeah. I think that um, we've really seen a lot of waves of food porn and Instagrammable food. And we've seen this era of um, things that are rainbow that shouldn't be rainbow, like rainbow bagels and <laughs> unicorn things. And, um, and I personally think that we're kind of coming out of that phase because at this point I would much rather look at a picture of a beautifully buttered piece of thick toast mm. than like one of those crazy milkshakes mm. or something that's totally artificial and so I think that we're appreciating <coughs> more these foods that might not necessarily pop immediately but we see them and we crave them. So pasta with cheese or like 
dumplings, and they Even don't need your it. voice is changing as you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting so hungry. Carb voice. But, <laughs> I, Carb on, voice. I feel like I feel like my Instagram feed has gotten slightly more beige. <laughs> I just like these more monochromatic foods more, and um, and just I don't know, just a slice of a loaf of bread, sourdough bread, is so beautiful, and we don't need all the bells and whistles that I think this time last year, this time two years ago, a lot of restaurants thought we needed. Um, people are able to see past that, and they're able to taste it even better through the screen. And, um, and it's becoming more real now. I think food, a, a lot of food photos are straying away from the overly styled overhead shots with the artfully strewn pieces of parsley off to the side. <laughs> I mean, I, I find that w with my Instagram photos, I get more likes if it's just a few cookies on a sheet pan that might be a dirty sheet pan and it's not styled at all, then, um, you know, two years ago it, it had to be on a pretty plate with a perfect bite taken out of it. Um, and so I really like this phase and I yeah. hope it continues. <laughs> um, so there's a few different questions along the same lines of, um, of alternative flowers and grains and what people think about those. Someone particularly asked um, you, Carla, about if you know about Fonio, um, which is maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about that. Um, I was introduced to Fonio through, um, this is a popular grain used in Senegalese cooking. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's almost like millet. But teeny uh, tiny, right? Teeny, yeah, teeny, really tiny, teeny, tiny, yeah. tiny. But again, that's one of those grains that's available. Bob's Red Mills and um, really? um, Anson Mills, they, they have a lot of these grains that are available now. And just stop at that little um, display and you can just play and just get one of those grains that you've never used before. Great. What do you, Jacques? Coming to you. This may not even be something that actually happens to you, but there was a question about what people do when they get into a cooking or baking rut. Do you ever get into a cooking rut? Like you don't, you feel like you don't know what to make. Well, what do you do? If you have enough wine around, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't care, right? Yeah. You just you no, stop caring. You know, I mean, this, this is, is also what, for Let for Letty. Clearly, this is what cooking is all about. I mean, bring friends together open a bottle of wine. People say, I don't know how to cook. I said, do you know any friend? They say, yeah. I said, well, then the next time you go to the house, say, can I come an hour ahead and bring a bottle of wine and cook with you and look? And they say, yes. And That's by great. the time you finish the bottle of wine, it doesn't really care whether the chicken <laughs> is overcooked. Or... <laughs> they yeah, didn't no, learn so anything you, you do. I mean, you know, this is not uh, brain surgery. You have to be together, enjoy yourself, look at it, you know. Jacques, don't you think, well, all of you, don't you think that a good part of cooking has to do with enjoying the process of cooking? Absolutely. That yeah. it's, it's really taking pleasure in each step of the process? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's a communication, too. I mean, I have a granddaughter who is 13 years old, 
I did a book cooking with, I mean, one sheet on their iPad or whatever, I mean, I can't follow. At least here we have a mean of communication. She come do, I say, get me some tarragon out of the garden. No, that's shy. No, this is not tarragon. This is it. I go to the market with her. I say, get me some pear. You think they are ripe? Smell them. You know, the tomato too. We have a mean of communication. We come and she is next to me. She, we cook to, otherwise I'll never talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, if she decides to go into the food business, she has a real leg up. I mean, <laughs> she's, if you haven't seen her, she's an incredibly poised, amazing oh, yeah. girl. You've yeah. done, you've done, you and Claudine yeah, have done an amazing me. job. Oh, mother, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much. I hate to cut this off, but we have sponsors upstairs with and a lot of goodies um, for you to eat. First, I want to thank Joe Yonin, our masterful master of ceremonies. for guiding us through the evening's feast of trends and to our esteemed, amazing panel for all of their insights. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much. We have a gift for each of you from Anilon Cookware in the, um, the green room. And Kerry Gold, our title sponsor, will be mailing each of you a special gift to your... Just two minutes, please. So they'll be mailing the, um, some cheeses and some um, wonderful things to your homes. I, I want to thank my co-chairs, Joyce Appleman, please stand up, Nancy Hopkins for their... T tireless efforts in making tonight happen. Uh, please stand, and all the members of my committee, please stand as I mention your name. Carrie Bachman, Sherry Bayer, Tara Bench, Patricia Clow, Julie Hardigan, Jan Hazard, Colleen Jezerek, Louise Kramer, Ellie Krieger, Kay Lindsay, Regina Ragone, Janine Sarlin, Gail Schoenberg, Barbara Sibley, Julia Stambolis, and Susan Westmoreland. Thank you. It, as Nancy always likes to say, it certainly took a village to produce this evening for you. And I want to thank all those volunteers who came early today and helped us. Again, a huge thanks to our sponsors who you'll be meeting at our reception, which is up in the terrace. Um, you'll take the elevator to the fifth floor. Those with VIP wrist tags, the green ones, when you're on your way out, please pick up your goodie bag after the reception. And um, thank you again to all those streamers around the country for joining us. And last but not least, we have the cookbooks of our esteemed panel upstairs for sale if you're interested. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.